Let's pray again. Our Father, we call on you now to encourage us by your word. I pray, O oh God, that you would help me to deliver it truthfully and honestly with integrity. Father, it is time for the church to arise. It is our hour. We pray, O oh Father, that you would grant us strength and courage to be the church, to not shrink back, but to move boldly forward in a world that has lost its way. I pray, O oh God, that your people who know the way, the truth, and the life, who know Jesus Christ, who know the this is the way, walk in it, don't turn to the left or the right. We know who we are. We know where we are going. We know what is true, O oh God. And I pray, Father, that you would infuse us with Holy Spirit power and courage to stand up and be counted for Christ and to move boldly forward, I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I have an important message for you this morning from God's Word, and it is found in the first chapter of the second letter of Peter. It has to do with our salvation. You say, wait a second, we know all about our salvation. Why are you preaching to us about our salvation? Well, I was thrilled that this sermon came up at the very, coincidentally, not coincidentally, but providentially at the time of the Lord's table. Because Peter himself explains in his letter, uh, in the third chapter of this second letter, that he says, dear friends, in the first, this is now my second letter to you, and I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. In other words, he says, I know this is not new stuff to you, and, and I'm not going to apologize that I'm not giving you new stuff. You need to be reminded of this over and over again. We need to be reminded of our salvation. In, in verse 12 of the first chapter of 2 Peter, Peter writes, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. I feel the same way this morning. I feel that it is necessary to remind you all over again. I was doing some research uh, for this sermon in just the, the lay of the landscape of the church of North America. And of course, as you know, most of the studies that are done are done in the state, uh, U.S. Uh, churches. So, you know, this is U.S. stuff. But um, they're usually uh, far more churchy in the U.S. than in Canada. So if the statistics... And the information is sobering in the U.S. about the church. It's cataclysmic in Canada. You know that, right? So um, in a uh, study on worldview, remember I told you last week that I'm very, very concerned and exercised about, about the fact that I think Christians have lost, uh, we, we are losing ground in a, in a sense of biblical worldview, and, uh, and as I was doing research, the, the concern that I have in my heart, just from my own observation, is bearing out in a study done by Barna just recently. And uh, he, he, uh, his organization circulated 51 worldview questions to evangelical churches. And in particular, uh, this, the interest that I have for us is in numbers that relate to non-charismatic evangelical churches like ours. 
And the survey found that approximately, this is stateside, that approximately one-fifth of congregants in non-charismatic evangelical Protestant churches hold fast to a biblical worldview. Only one in five people in non-charismatic evangelical churches hold fast to a biblical worldview in American churches. And I have no reason to think the numbers are any better in Canadian churches and perhaps even worse. So maybe my concern that I have in my heart is even worse than I thought. The non-Christian worldviews that are being embraced by evangelicals are postmodernism, Marxism. Now, this is not non-Christians, beloved. This is us. Postmodernism, Marxism, secular humanism, and modern mysticism, but not a biblical worldview. Four of five evangelicals are embracing what I just read to you. Four of five of us. A, um, the dominant values in the United States today are acceptance, comfort, Control, entertainment, entitlement, experiences, freedom, and happiness. Biblical worldview values are civic duty, hard work, humility, faith, family, moderation, and rule of law. Diametrically different than what's going on around us. Peter is writing with this kind of burden on his heart in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. And the big question that I want to explore to you today from this text is this. What practical evidence do you have in your life that gives you confidence that you are a genuine heaven-bound believer? Okay? That's the big question that we want to answer today from the text. What practical evidence do you have in your life that gives you confidence that you are a genuine, heaven-bound believer? Simon Peter, verse 1, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace to yours in abundance, or be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, 
Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, in other words, these qualities, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. To the glory of God, amen. Now, when I looked at my assignment for today, and I saw what was here and how packed it was, it became nine sermons. Literally, I'm telling you the truth. I decided that I can't do this in one sermon. It'll swamp you. And, and you'll ne we'll never have the time. We would need seven hours. So I've decided that a big chunk of this sermon, or a big chunk of this section, is going to form the fall the, in September. The first eight sermons we're going to do is going to be here on how to practically live out the Christian life. Okay, so that's where we're going to go, God willing, in September. But so, so you won't feel cheated this morning and say, hey man, you didn't talk about any of this stuff. Well, that's, that's why. I wanted to tell you up front, we're going to go there. We'll go there, just relax. So here we go. Peter here wants us to have wholesome thinking from chapter 3. He, he writes all of this so we'll have wholesome thinking or really, literally, to stir up our minds so, so that what we think, in other words, how we're thinking, ideally in a, in a biblical worldview sense, how we're thinking stands up against the scrutiny of the sun's full blast light. In this case, S-U-N, sun. The sun's, the brightest of bright light shining on our minds. That there's no hidden areas in our minds of incorrect thinking about the matters of our soul. It is too critically important for us to have anything go awry in our hearts with respect to the truth about our salvation. Peter says this stuff is so important that I don't mind reminding you over and over again because I want you to know about your salvation. I want you to be sure of your salvation. I want you to be secure in your calling and your election in Christ's family. I don't want you to fall. I don't want you not to be welcomed into heavenly dwellings. Does that seem like it's something important to us? Do you think this is important? <laughs> you with me? Yes, yes, okay. A few, a few of you are incredibly eager and enthused about this. We're talking about your eternal soul today. 
There is no greater subject. There's, there's nothing more important in life than to get this right. And so the simple fact is when we came to know Christ, it was an invisible gift given to us. The invisible gift of salvation. Because the invisible gift of salvation is the moving of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And as Jesus explained to Nicodemus, we don't see the wind, we see the effects of the wind. He said, you don't seem to understand the things of God. And, and here you are, a teacher of the law. What is your problem? You, you look at the wind and you believe in the wind because you see its effects. Why don't you believe in the Holy Spirit and, and see his effects in your life? That's what Peter is saying here. You didn't see your salvation. You didn't see it come into your life. But you ought to see the effects of your salvation. That's critical to our stirred up minds to be correct in our thinking. There are big markers that show up in our lives that validate that we truly have received the invisible gift of salvation. You see? And what we believe to be true and how we translate such beliefs into action is crucial to genuine salvation to making certain that you won't fall as an apostate. Having lived out many years of your life claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ and somewhere along the journey falling into disbelief and not making it to heaven. That is highly possible. Peter doesn't want it to happen. God doesn't want it to happen. And you don't want it to happen. So what's the deal then? Peter is very concerned here about casual, ineffective Christianity that is susceptible to bad teaching and spiritual shipwreck. That's why he's going to go on and spend the whole of chapter 2 and, and part of the rest of chapter 1 talking about the, the authenticity of God's Word as a, as a guide to our lives and the reality of false teachers all around. And we are surrounded, beloved, literally surrounded by bad, bad teaching, false teaching. And Peter warns there are false prophets and false teachers among you. Yes, among us. Yes, among us at Calvary. When you do a survey and you realize that only one in five evangelical Christians have a biblical worldview, that means there's some people in our midst who are living a very bad life, who are living under very bad teaching, who themselves are modeling in their lives false teaching among us. So let's review our salvation at this Lord's table. Our salvation is what qualifies us to participate in the Lord's table. So let's understand. Let's see if we pass the test. Otherwise, don't gather at the Lord's table. Put the elements away and come to the cross and get saved first. And then pick up the elements and receive them as a, as a saved person. I have only two points this morning. But as you know, there's lots of subpoints. But only two points. And the one is this. You don't work for your Christianity. It's a gift from God. You don't work for your Christianity. It is a gift from God. Where do I get that? I get that from the Bible. To those 
who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. You don't work for something you receive. It is gifted to you. You receive it to those who have received a faith. You didn't accept Jesus. Jesus accepted you. And you received him. You received his salvation, his offer of salvation. By faith, you believed and you received his salvation. You received his righteousness as a gift. And he gave you the deposit of your, on your salvation. Who is that? Don't be timid. The Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee of our salvation. It's a particular faith. This faith of ours is a very particular faith. You don't receive it by good works. You don't receive it by being good. In fact, the rich young man came to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? You know, what good thing? He says, and what good thing must I do to be saved? That was the, that was the operative word. What good thing? Because he came loaded with good things. And Jesus said, oh, you know the commandments. Go do the commandments. And he says, and why are, you, why are you asking me if I'm good? Why are you calling me good? He says, why are you calling me good teacher? What good thing? Good teacher, what good thing must I do? He says, why are you calling me good? Don't you know that only God is good? Because he knew in his heart that this guy thought he was good. And he says to Jesus, I've done all the commandments. I am a good person. Therefore, I should be eligible for this. Jesus says, no, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. And at that moment... Jesus pointed the finger at him because he wasn't willing to do that. And he said, you aren't really as good as you think you are, are you? And the bottom line is you can't be good enough. None of us can be good enough for Jesus. We require a perfect righteousness. And there's only one place to get a perfect righteousness. Isn't that true? There's only one who was perfectly righteous, Jesus Christ. That's why it says here, you have received who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. You have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ or you're not saved. A holy God cannot accept people on the basis of their goodness because it's not good enough. A holy God does receive us, does welcome us on the basis of the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we place our faith. That's what Peter's teaching here. A righteousness, by the way, from our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're looking for a high-level divinity statement on Jesus, it doesn't get more, it doesn't get better than this. Look at what it says here. Look at what it calls him. He's our God and he's our Savior. Who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our God and our Savior. Jesus Christ is God and Savior. Jesus Christ is God and Savior. Lenski in his commentary writes about this. The deity of Christ stands forth as a mountain here. So if anybody's asking you, any of your friends who are having trouble with Jesus being God, say, well, where do you get that? Where does that even show up in the Bible? I would 
point them to this verse right here. Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. As far as what conclusion we can make here is the Apostle Peter who hung out with Jesus tells us he's God. And by the way, it says here that you have received a faith as precious as ours, literally of equal value or equal privilege. This gospel, this true salvation is available to anyone, available to all, have received a faith as precious as ours. To those, to all of those, to anyone, to anybody in this world, you have received it. It's the same kind of faith, the same kind of salvation. It's a salvation whereby we receive equal privilege. That's an important juxtaposition in our world moment right now with all of the unrest, all of the racial unrest. Listen to this. Listen to what this is saying. Christian identity is equal privilege in Jesus regardless of your nationality, regardless of the color of your skin. We all have equal privilege in Christ. That's our identity. That's God's answer to this unrest. God's answer to the racial unrest is salvation in Jesus Christ. Come to Christ and receive equal privilege. That's powerful stuff. That's powerful biblical worldview. And we receive this the same way. It's imputed to us. It's a gift. It's a verdict pronounced on us by Almighty God. I pronounce you righteous in Christ. It's the same gift. We all receive the same gift. The gift of righteousness. The gift of Jesus' perfect righteousness. So that when God sees us, he sees his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfect. It's the same gift. It's validated by receiving a very active in your life Holy Spirit. It's the same message that is believed. The same object of our faith. It says here, through knowledge. Look at Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's a particular message. It's a particular body of truth message. That's why Peter says in, in chapter, uh, chapter 3 verse 2, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is... The true message is found in God's Word, not by reading a bunch of Christian books, so-called Christian books, Christian bestsellers. Many of them should be bad sellers because they're not true. They're filled with false doctrine. The Bible is filled with truth. The Bible is truth. You want to understand your salvation? Get good at the Bible. Get good at God's Word. That's where it is found. That's where you will not be led astray. The prophets promised and described and the apostles taught and proclaimed. It's the same blessings. We receive abundant grace and peace. We receive great and precious promises from God. It's the same rights and results. Notice what the results are. So that through them, the precious promises, I'm in verse 4, you may participate 
in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's the result. We become partakers of the divine nature. But by the way, that phrase, and it has been written and abused in lots of so-called Christian books, does not mean that we become divine. No, 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 no. We actually, uh, through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we are able to take on characteristics of Jesus Christ. My hair stands on end with some of the things I'm reading out there that are suggesting that Jesus, uh, we can do anything that Jesus did because Jesus was no different than a man filled with the Holy Spirit. That is heresy. And it's being packaged in so-called Christian books and a lot of them, a lot of them are saying this. Jesus is God incarnate full of his own spirit. This spirit isn't a foreign being to a, a man named Jesus. The spirit is the spirit of Christ, very God. There's no disconnect between them. Jesus is not some sort of human powered by the Holy Spirit. He is God become flesh, be fully God, fully man, filled with his own spirit. We become partakers. We're empowered. In fact, the word there is koinonia. You know this word, koinonia. The word that's translated here, participation in the divine nature. You all know the word koinonia. It was very popular. Everybody loved to use, you know, hey, I know a Greek word, koinonia. Oh, I know another one, agape. Those are, you know, everybody knows some Greek. Well, koinonia, it just simply means fellowship. We are going to koinonia with Jesus shortly at the Lord's table. It's a participation with Jesus. It's fellowshipping with Jesus. He actually, actually are fellowshipping with Jesus. And when we come to know Christ as our Savior, we are actually fellowshipping with Christ, and we never used to be able to. And more and more of Jesus is rubbing off on us because of our hanging around with him and because the Holy Spirit lives within us. That's why we learn to learn about Jesus by reading God's word, reading more of God's word. But I have more to say about that in a few minutes. And then Peter spends the rest of this section, after he's given the theology of salvation, that you don't work for your Christianity, giving experiential evidence that dis differentiates between simply believing in Jesus uh, or, or from believing in Jesus uh, from simply knowing about Jesus. There is a difference. The demons know about Jesus. I hear people tell, what's, what's your testimony? Well, I, I, know, I know about Jesus. I, I've heard about Jesus. People have taught me about Jesus. That's not a testimony. Uh, demons could give that testimony. They know about Jesus too. Do you believe in him? Is there evidence in your life that you actually have the life-transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life? That's what Peter's going to spend the rest of the time talking about here. And we'll spend eight weeks in, in the fall talking about. But let me just give you an overview quickly. Do you notice what it says here? For this reason, verse 5, make every effort. Christianity is hard, hard work. So point number two, we don't work for our Christianity, but we do work because of our Christianity. It's your gift to God. Salvation is God's gift to you. 
We work because of our Christianity as our gift to God. Now notice here, there are words. It's not optional, by the way. Make every effort as a command to add to your faith these kinds of evidentiary uh, behavioral patterns that demonstrate that you truly have salvation. This is not the root of our salvation. This is the fruit of salvation. This is not how you get saved. This is how you demonstrate that you are saved. This is how you gain confidence and make your calling and election sure by this kind of evidence in your life and your eagerness to live like this, making every effort, not relaxing on some passive bed and saying, oh, I came to know, oh, I, I accepted Jesus. Yeah, I think I accepted Jesus like, I don't know, 15 years ago. I went to the front of a church. I think I did that. And now you're laying in bed somewhere? You haven't done anything with your salvation? Your so-called salvation? That's not salvation. That's pretending. Applying all diligence. Look, look at the phrases, verse 5. In verse 8, if these qualities are yours in increasing measure... Be all the more diligent, verse 10, as long as you practice these things, verse 10. It's a practical faith. It's not only a particular faith, but it's a practical faith. To your faith, add moral excellence. Again, this is not how you get salvation, which is the mistake the Catholic Church makes. This is, in fact, rather how you see that you have your salvation. These are foundations. The foundation is our faith in Jesus Christ, and after that, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. These have to be eagerly occurring in your life. You have to be seeing great effort occur. Spiritual growth is not a matter, of, uh, 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 a matter to be taken lightly. Make every effort. Otherwise, you'll be ineffective, unproductive, or worse than that, you might not be a believer at all and you'll fall and you won't be welcome into heavenly dwellings because you're nearsighted and blind. How can you be nearsighted and blind? You ever thought about that? You're either nearsighted or blind. I think what he means here is you intentionally shut your eyes. So there's some people who are nearsighted, they just can only see the immediate and they live for the immediate and thereby disqualify themselves from actually validating that they're really saved. Or they actually shut their eyes to the truth on purpose and refuse to acknowledge that they, that they knew about forgiveness and they knew that they could be forgiven of their sins, but they are still victims of their sins ongoing and, and say, oh yeah, I made a decision for Jesus about 15 years ago, but you're still living like a sinner all the time? You're not, there's no evidence in your life of salvation? That's not Bible salvation. That seems to be a common type of salvation among evangelicals, but that's not, that's not real saving faith. James, the brother of Jesus, said, listen, um, you know, you show, me, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. Faith alone, faith, faith only, not, we're saved by faith alone, but not faith only. Add to your faith. Make certain that these things are occurring in your life. God grants us the divine power to do so. He has given us everything we need. So what is freely received in your heart, according to this text, is multiplied in its effects in your head, knowing Jesus well as God and his distinctiveness as God, making certain that we're not soft on that or weak on that, 
Knowing that we know how Jesus, our God, differs from the God of the Muslims, the God of the Mormons, the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses. We're not all one big happy family, you know. One big happy religious family. We are not. And believers need to know the difference between Jesus, the true God, and a world of other gods. Can you articulate that? You cannot expect to have grace and peace increasing in abundance in your life unless you are digging in and, and, and knowing God and, uh, and knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. In Christianity, you have everything necessary to become fully mature, but you must pour yourself into fully knowing Christ. We must constantly be doing that. Now, you can't be holy without the Holy Spirit. It starts by having a relationship with Christ, of course. But what we have here is we must be diligent in using all means possible to benefit from the resident Holy Spirit that we have in us. Richard Foster, in his book, calls it cooperating with means of grace. That's what Peter's talking about here. Peter is saying to us, look at what are the ways that you as a believer can eagerly make every effort to grow in Christ, to become mature in Christ. What are the means of grace? What are the ways that the Holy Spirit will actually shape and change your life? How about the Bible? How about prayer? How about gathering together with God's people? How about serving the body of Christ? How about making certain that we're fellowshipping with one another? making certain that we are worshiping together and praising the Lord, these are all ways that you make it, make every effort to utilize the fact that the Holy Spirit is living in your life because this is the way the Holy Spirit will cause you to grow. And if these things aren't happening in your life, if there's no eagerness, if there's no effort put into Bible and prayer and praise and fellowship and serving, then, beloved, I'm, I'm warning you, and Peter's warning you this morning, maybe you don't have salvation. If there is no desire, no urgency, no, no passion within you to pray, to read God's Word, to gather with God's people, to praise the Lord, to serve the Lord, to serve one another then maybe you don't have what you think you claim to have. That's what Peter's saying here. And he's saying to you that if you are coasting along on a false idea of salvation, you will fall. And the fall here means fall away from any possibility of having a relationship with Christ. It means apostasy. It means you will turn your back on Jesus. The Jesus that you know in your head, but you've never received in your heart, that you don't really know. Now, the scriptures nowhere teach that a genuine believer can ever fall. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. A, ge a genuine believer will not fall. Peter's simply saying here, make sure that your calling and election are real or genuine. That's what he's saying. In order to be welcomed to God's eternal kingdom, you must diligently pursue spiritual maturity. We call you to that. That's why 
essential for at Calvary Baptist Church is we believe growing Christ followers is a necessity. Why is that there? Because it actually is a command of God's word. If you have the real thing, it should be, you should be drawn toward moving towards spiritual maturity. This is critical teaching, beloved. You don't work for your Christianity. It is a gift of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You don't work for that. But you do work because of your Christianity. And if you aren't, perhaps you didn't receive the gift in the first place. So go back to the cross. Repent of your sins and your presumption. And trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you will be saved. And then your heart will swell with eagerness to grow in Christ. And I'm talking to you, to you at home. If you are, have found yourself kind of in a lethargic moment, and you're not here gathered with us this morning because you just don't have any drive or energy, I'm saying, do you really know Christ? Maybe you don't know the Lord. Or maybe it's time to get up off of your bed, get up off of your bed of ease and get back with God's family. If you can go other places, you can come here and gather with us. We'll make as many services as we need to. Uh, by God's strength, I will preach as many times as I have to to enable us in, in a safe way to make certain that we are taking care of the health of our souls, not just the health of our bodies. Beloved, gather with us. If we eat, we grow. So eat God's word. If we train, we get strong. Practice your salvation. Serve God. If we read, we know. Read God's word. If we visit with the Lord at the Lord's table through prayer, through praise, we will experience relationship with him. If we connect and if we serve, we will broaden our experience with Christ and we will increase our results, the results of God's Holy Spirit work in transforming us. You know, if someone is a really athletic person and they decide to set out and really light the world on fire in athletics, because there are people who are just nat naturally athletic, right? They're just born with those gifts. They don't just show up at the Olympics and say, look, I'm a natural athlete. I'm going to win the race. Nobody does that. Natural athletes train like no one else in the world to be a gold medalist. And Peter is calling Christians to gold medal eagerness about your salvation so that you will make sure, be confident that you're really called, really in the family of God. Our Father, I pray this morning as we now transition to the Lord's table, the table that belongs to those with an eager desire to make their calling and election sure because they've received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
Lord, it is a rich privilege. We're eager. We are eager today to get to the Lord's table. Eager because we become partakers of the body and blood of Christ. We become, we fellowship with Jesus in a profound way. So, oh Lord, I'm excited right now to be able to welcome my brothers and sisters to this, the table of the Lord. Near and far, here in the building, wherever they are on vacation, Lord, right now, we gather together as a family of God because we're eager, eager to, to benefit from being partakers of the divine nature through the great and precious promises given to us through our salvation in Christ Jesus. Oh, a righteousness, a precious righteousness, a hundred percent perfection, holiness, granted to us because of Christ. Not because we could be good enough, we couldn't be good enough, but because you have called us and have imputed on us the righteousness of Christ. Oh, Lord, we praise you, we thank you. We are eager to grow in you, to know you more and to love you more and to serve you more and, and to, in these difficult days that the people around us might see the, the, the reality of Jesus exuding from our lives every pore of our life, goodness and kindness and love and brotherly care and all that, that comes with the package deal of being a genuine follower of Christ. Lord, make it so in our lives today. You've given us the power to do this. Now, Lord, build into our lives a new holy passion and eagerness to be effective and productive and not fall and be welcomed richly into heavenly dwellings when you call us. Oh, Lord, this is the atmosphere, the crackling, expectant atmosphere of true followers of Christ who love you and know you in a world that is lost, in a church that is, that is only 20% biblical worldview. Oh, God, what is happening to us? We're falling away from you. We're moving away from you. God, call us back. Call us back to truth. Call us back to good teaching. Call us back to rich doctrine. Oh, Lord, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen.